We uh, return to the book of Acts this morning, so I invite you to meet me in Acts chapter 19, starting in verse 11. Once again, that's Acts 19, verse 11. Last week, we saw that Paul's missionary journey took him to the city of Ephesus, where he enjoyed fruitful ministry for over two years. And uh, this week, we give our attention to a specific event that's recorded during his time in Ephesus in the time frame of uh, that that two-year period. Um, And so we'll read this, uh, look at this together. This is a great story. Uh, I was really looking forward to this one. My middle school spirit probably had way more fun with this passage uh, than it probably should. Um, You'll see why. Uh, We're going to begin in verse 11, and uh, we're going to read until verse 20. I encourage you to follow along as I read. This is what God's word says. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Siva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging uh, their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Let's pray with me. Father, we come now to your word knowing and professing that it is mighty and powerful, that these are words of life, which have the power to save and have the power to transform. Even the most stubborn and hardened hearts have been moved and softened by your word through your spirit. Just as your word continued to increase and prevail mightily in Ephesus, we pray that it would continue to increase and prevail mightily right here in Erie. We submit ourselves to your Spirit's tender hand this morning, Father, and we ask that he take up his chisel in these next few moments in order to carve away at the excess of our life that does not look like Jesus so that we may be molded into Christ's likeness according to your sovereign will. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. As many of you are well aware, I am uh, quite a fan of the author C.S. Lewis. And one of my favorite uh, of his works are the uh, Screwtape Letters. It's a a clever uh, little fictional book that takes the form of, uh, it's a collection of 31 letters written by a demon uh, named Screwtape to his nephew, who is named Wormwood. And uh, Wormwood is designated as this junior tempter. 
And so he's kind of like a demon in training. He's receiving devilish instruction from his uncle. And the book, although fictional, it offers some thoughts uh, and ideas on how the spiritual realm interacts with the physical realm. And throughout the book, you really see spiritual warfare on display um, and at play. And in an age of both increasing atheism and materialism, it's important as believers to recognize and profess, as God's word does, that the spiritual realm exists, that it's real, that, that spiritual warfare exists and that it happens and that Satan and his legion of partners are active in this world. We believe that the spiritual world influences the physical world. And we also believe that the physical world influences the spiritual world. They are not divided, but rather they overlap onto each other. And now, while we confess this to be true, and, and we don't uh, want to underestimate this, there is also a word of caution to be had uh, as to not overestimate it. And this is what C.S. Lewis speaks to in his prologue of the screw tape letters when he writes that there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves, he's talking about the devils, are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. When we come across a passage like the one that we come across today in Acts 19, we must walk a fine line between focusing on spiritual warfare too much or too little. And at the end of the day, what we'll find this morning is that the emphasis of the passage is actually not on spiritual warfare, which does occur in the passage, but actually what the spiritual warfare sets up. You see, this story is set up in three different scenes. If you were watching this as a movie or watching this as a television show, you would see three different scenes. And the first two scenes portray spiritual warfare, but it sets up the main point of the passage in the third scene. Scene one and two merely set the table for scene three, and scene three is the punchline of the passage. And so let's work this, uh, through this together. Starting in verse 11 and 12, um, we have scene number one, power play. That's what I would call scene number one, power play. We read that God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. So we see that as we come to this uh, verse 11, we must immediately put into practice what was just mentioned, the need for balance. Uh, It's very tempting, I've seen it before, for people to read through the pages of Scripture and see all of these miraculous accounts and say that miracles happened all the time in the early church. So why don't they happen all the time now? The reality is, though, they probably didn't happen as often as one might assume in that time. 
Because we must remember that Scripture is complete, but it's not what I would say comprehensive. It is complete, but it is not comprehensive. Let me, um, let me make clear what I mean by that. Um, this is what I mean. Scripture is complete in that we have everything we need in order to know God and be reconciled to him and to live a life that, that is honoring to God. There is no further revelation needed from God. He has fully revealed himself, all of himself that we need to know about in order to know him, right? There is no more God has given me a separate word apart from the Bible, right? There is no need for further revelation. We have it all right here. Scripture is complete. All the details we need are present, but it is not comprehensive in that it doesn't record every single last detail of ministry in the first century church, right? There was so much ministry that happened in the ordinariness of life that never even got recorded, right? The pages of the New Testament alone cover the historical events of nearly a century. That's a long time to talk about in a relatively short, uh, short book, if you will, or short books. And when you include the events of the Old Testament, it covers the span of thousands, thousands of years. In the book of Acts alone, there are verses, you, you wouldn't know it until you dig a little bit deeper into the context, but there are verses that are separated by years of activity, of ministry activity, of gospel advancement. So I get why the reader may think that these miracles were regular occurrences because they appear so frequently in Scripture, but we have to understand that they are the exception more than the norm, which is why they got written about, because these are the, the amazing things that happen, and we got to record these so people will know. Truth be told, we didn't really need to look any further than our own passage to understand this because right there in verse 11, the miracles are described as extraordinary miracles. The word for extraordinary, it literally means no ordinary, not ordinary. Using this this expression signifies that they were outside of the norm and to expect them to be in the norm would make them logically not extraordinary. Right? What this sets us up for is that something very unusual is happening here in Ephesus. Something out of the norm. And these are like cluster miracles. Like it's happening all over the place during this given time. Something unusual is happening. And so it begs the question, why here? If they're so unusual, if they're so out of the norm, why do they suddenly happen here in Ephesus? Well, there's a significance to the setting. A key to understanding what's happening in Ephesus is understanding the culture of Ephesus. Because every culture takes on certain characteristics which serve as a barrier between them and God. There are always attributes collectively within a community which hold its members in bondage and holds them in hostage. And in such cultural characteristics often affect a community's receptivity to the gospel. And the same is true for Ephesus. 
For Ephesus, that community was under the bondage and imprisonment of magical arts, magic and sorcery and witchcraft. Ephesus was known as the center for learning and practicing magical arts. Right In that time, the vast majority of people were, were very superstitious. Belief in magic was very common, and Ephesus was at the center of it all. Right, Spells, magical formulas, incantations, they were popular. They were widely used. The city of Ephesus, it was home to the temple of the pagan gar- goddess uh, Artemis, which was kind of the main attraction of that region. It was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was four times the size of the Parthenon in Athens, Greece. And on the pedestal of the statue of Artemis, there were words inscribed that were known um, as a a magical formula, as as an incantation. A, A magic spell that when spoken or read by a person, if pronounced correctly, was believed, uh, it was believed that these words could protect somebody from danger or deliver them from evil or even provide them with a good fortune or a good future, right? When people got married in Ephesus, oftentimes this incantation would be said at their ceremony so that they would have good fortune in their marriage. Sorcerers of the time would urge those possessed by demons to recite these magical words, this magical formula. This specific incantation that was engraved on the pedestal of the statue of Artemis actually went on to become known as the Ephesia Grammata, the Ephesia Grammata, or what we would call Ephesian letters or Ephesian words. And if you've picked up, as the name indicates, this incantation was named after the city of Ephesus. And that phrase, Ephesia Grammata, actually became like a catchword, a catchphrase, just to reference any type of magic spell. Even to this day, there are people who participate in witchcraft, who have books of spells that they would call their Ephesian letters, the Ephesian words. So, So you see how the culture of Ephesus is just engulfed and under this intense influence of magic and evil spiritual power. So, of course, God is going to flex here in this way through miracles, through his power. And he does it in a way that is culturally recognizable in Ephesus. Um, In the magical arts, symbolism plays an important role. And so God, what does he do? uses symbols here in this passage to reveal himself to the people and show them that he is greater than any of these forces. This is God's power play. Once again, verse 11, God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, that had touched Paul and their diseases left them and evil spirits came out of them. Um, These aprons and handkerchiefs, they were most likely items connected with Paul's work as a tent maker, a leather worker. Um, Although an apostle, we know that Paul was also a tent maker by trade. Uh, The the handkerchiefs would have been like sweat rags wrapped around his head to keep his sweat from pouring down the front of his face in the heat of the sun. 
Um, and the apron would most likely be worn around his waist like a belt to cover his clothing. Um, these items which had come into contact with Paul, they were carried away and they were actually healing people and, and casting out uh, evil spirits just at their touch. They, they were demonstrating a power that had authority over sickness and over demons. So you read that and, and you say, okay, we recognize that this happened. Scripture affirms that people were healed and exercised through the contact with these objects. However, we must be careful about focusing on the objects or the symbols too much because we know that these objects had no properties of power in and of themselves. Right? There was nothing really special about these objects. They only served as a vehicle, if you will, to deliver power. And frankly, there's really nothing special about Paul either in this passage. Right? Right? Paul's in a similar boat because we know that power didn't come from Paul. Because Luke makes it perfectly clear in verse 11 that God was doing, or more literally, God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. Paul is not performing the miracles. God is. God's performing the miracles. God is the one who issued the power. This is God's handiwork, not Paul's. And just like the handkerchief and apron, God uses Paul as merely a vehicle a conduit. Paul is like in this situation, a a token on a chessboard that God under his sovereignty utilizes to accomplish his purposes. And Paul willingly lets God use him in this way. He, He submits to God in obedience. That is how this is playing out in verse 11. And this is quite a shift from the secular Ephesian understanding of power, how they understood power. And even today, it's somewhat a shift of how we understand power. Even in the most innocent depictions of power today, as we watch movies and and TV shows, power is typically always something you possess. You go and watch one of the very popular superhero movies these days, and I don't want to rag on them too much because I greatly enjoy them, but isn't the story always the same? You have some kind of origin story, where there's a normal human being who somehow, some way, comes into possession of power and they obtain it and holds it and controls it and has authority over it and, and, and such superhero determines for themselves how they desire to use it, whether it be for good or for evil. The difference between a secular understanding of power in a biblical understanding of power, is that Paul does not possess God's power. God's power actually possesses Paul. God's power has a hold on Paul, not the other way around. In in these miracle accounts, God's power is not something that you handle as if it's a pawn in your hand used to accomplish your own purposes or will. Yet that is exactly what we see in scene two of the passage, which I've titled Humbled and Humiliated. Humbled and Humiliated. In verse 13, we meet this group of itinerant Jewish exorcists who see the extraordinary miracles that are happening by, the, by Paul's hand and they think to themselves, wow, that's amazing. We want to get in on that. 
We want some of that. Look how much Paul is making a name for himself. We ought to do what he does. So they do, verse 13, they begin to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. And right there, they tip their hand, right? This alone tells us where they are in their relationship with Jesus in that they don't have a relationship with Jesus, right? right? They're, they're not unified with Jesus and we know it and even they know it to be true because they don't even pretend that they do, right? They, they, what do they say? I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. It's almost like they have this some, some sort of self-awareness that, that, that they don't have this relationship with Jesus. Right? Basically, they say, they say, Jesus is not the one that we proclaim, we proclaim something else. It's not who we proclaim, but Paul proclaims Jesus. This is his Lord. This is his God. Uh, but Paul has done some pretty cool stuff by Jesus' name. And so let's just throw his name out there like a little magic word, like an Ephesian letter. Let's see what happens. You see, to these men, Jesus' name was nothing more than a magic spell in which they could accomplish their own purposes. It was no more than a formula by which they could use for their own glory. Now take a moment to consider the historic, ironic tragedy of this moment. The fact that they are designated as Jewish exorcists and sons of a high Jewish priest is not insignificant. Right? If you were to go back into Jewish law, go back to the Torah, go back to Exodus, go back to the Ten Commandments, and what do you find as the third commandment? You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And now, this command is more than just treating God's name as a, as a swear word. It's much more than that. You see, names in the Bible were so much more purposeful and significant than they even are now. They they were regarded as being attached to your nature or your character or even your identity. They they were associated with who you were as a being. So back in Exodus, when God tells Moses to go back to Egypt and deliver the Israelites from Pharaoh's hand, Moses asks God, who should I tell, tell them sent me? Like, what if they asked me your name? What is your name? Who, 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 sent, who sent me? And God says, I am who I am. That is my name. I am. This name refers to God's self-existence. This is a reflection of of his self-existent, self-sufficient being. That that God and God alone has life in and of himself, that he doesn't need anything else to have life. He just exists. And he's always existed. He's never come into existence. I am. I am who I am. That is my name. So once again, his nature, his attributes, his character, his glory, his identity are reflected in his name. And so when the third commandment says don't take his name in vain, it, it, it really means just don't, don't misuse his name. 
Treat his name with utter respect. Treat his name as you would treat him because to misuse his name would deny his nature and deny his character and deny his identity and even deny his very being. To treat his name with contempt is to treat God with contempt. And the Israelites were so serious about this command. They took it so seriously that they were petrified to even say his name in fear of misusing it, even by accident. They wouldn't even write it down. In the Old Testament, whenever you read the word LORD in all caps, that is what they would write in place of God's divine name. They didn't even want to misuse it in their writing. This is a serious command. And we come back to the New Testament where we see and proclaim that Jesus is God in the flesh. And in Philippians 2, Paul writes that God the Father exalted Jesus Christ and gave him what? The name that is above all other names at which every knee shall bow. And the seven sons of Siva use it as some sort of a magic word no different than abracadabra. How do you think this will end for them? They treat Jesus as nothing more than a lackey to carry out their business. And that right there is the difference between miracles and magic. In case you were wondering, magical arts seek to manipulate God, to control him, whereas a miracle is God's sovereign action through someone. We're, we're, we're told that on one occasion they try to cast out this evil spirit with a name that they have no business using in such a way and they receive this humbling response in verse 15. The evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, right? I'm familiar with Jesus and Paul I recognize, but who are you? This is a pretty funny moment, right? Take a moment to appreciate the comedic value to this. The evil spirit is mocking them. He has no fear of these seven sons of Siva. He's saying, yeah, I I know Jesus. He's not one to be trifled with. He's a pretty scary guy. It, It actually seems like the evil spirit has more fear of Jesus than these seven sons of Siva. These evil spirits know Jesus better than these exorcists, right? They're well acquainted with Jesus. He's well acquainted with Jesus. He said, I'm familiar with Jesus. That guy's scary. And, and you know what? I, I, don't, I don't know Paul like I am aware of Jesus, but I do recognize his name. I've heard of him before, which as a side note is pretty impressive. You know, Paul, you know that Paul is grinding it out for the kingdom when you've got evil spirits talking about him around the water cooler, right? The, the, the evil spirit is saying, I, yeah, I've heard of Paul before. I'm familiar with Jesus. I recognize Paul's name. But who are you? The, the seven sons of who? Siva? I've never heard of you. Sorry, it doesn't ring a bell. The evil spirit isn't phased a bit and they are humbled and then they are absolutely humiliated. Right? Having absolutely no fear of these men, this one spirit takes on all seven of them, attacks them, injures them, and then they are all sent running down the road, injured and naked. Now, come on, that's funny. I like, <laughs> pastor's talking about people running around naked in church. 
They flee like a dog with its tail between its legs. And you won't have people running down the road naked without the community taking notice. This is newsworthy, right? Words going to get around about that, uh, which brings us to the final scene in verses 17 through 20, where we see a repentant response. This is how you could title scene three, a repentant response. Um, scene one and two are there to set up this contrast, right, between Paul and, and these sons of Siva. And now the scene turns to the speculators, the spectators, the onlookers, right, um, in the community who witnessed this humiliation of these uh, Jewish exorcists. Uh, verse 17, and this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Now, this doesn't necessarily mean that they all came to Christ, but they did remember the name of Christ that day. His name that was just used as a meager token is now held in high honor. People were afraid of it. They were afraid of the majesty and the authority and the glory of the name above all other names. There was now respect for the name that had not been there before. And then something else incredible happens in verse 18. In addition to Jesus' name being held in a high regard and respected among the city, there were these believers. It's written in a way to suggest that these believers were already believers, came forward, and they basically had a giant bonfire where they burned their magic books. Now, now something that we need to highlight in this verse, once again, it says that these are are, are believers who came forward to do this. These, These were people who already believed, yet were still in possession of these books and potentially even still practicing the arts. And what this shows us is the come-as-you-are nature of the gospel. The powerful gospel of grace, which doesn't require you to clean up your act, to secure salvation to believe. We have a Savior in Jesus who says, I will meet you right where you are. No matter the darkness of your life or the severity of your sin or the lifestyle that you live, Jesus comes right where you are. And he doesn't require you to clean yourself up because you can't. Only he can do that. And to think that God requires you to change prior to coming to Jesus would be like taking a sick person to the hospital only for the hospital to turn around and say, you know, we would really like to keep this place squeaky clean. And so please um, go ahead and just go back home, get well, And then you can come back and and then we will receive you once you are well. Well, if I can recover on my own and heal on my own, then what need do I have for a hospital? It defeats the whole purpose of the hospital. In, In the same way, in my sin, I can't recover. I can't heal myself. I can't clean myself. So I need Jesus. 
And Jesus loves me enough, once again, to meet me right where I am, no matter how sick I am. And the glory is that he loves me enough not to let me stay there either. He loves me enough to not let me stay in my continued imprisonment of my sin. And that's what's happening to these believers in Ephesus, right? As they walk faithfully with Jesus, they see even more of his glory. They were aware of his glory at one point because they believed in his name. But as they walked and as they grew and as they matured and as they saw Jesus' power on display, as they were exposed more to the radiance of his name, that is what prompted the change of heart, right? You'll notice that they didn't come forward because they had to. They didn't come forward because they were forced to. No, they came forward under their own accord. They came forward because they were compelled to change, having seen the face of Jesus more clearly that day. Because their hearts had been molded, because they were further exposed to the glory of the Lord Jesus. And in seeing that glory of Jesus, they recognized their lifestyle for what it truly is. They recognized the ugliness of, of it. They recognized that it was, it was a deadly, wretched part of their life that needed to be put away, that, need, that something needed to be done with this. Putting it away was a two-step process for them. First step, they, they confessed and divulged their practices. They, they opened up publicly about the practices that they've participated in. They, they bring it to, to the light which is rather significant in this context because it was broadly believed that, that one of the keys to the magical arts is that there is power in the secrecy of it. There is power to the mystery of it. Many people would think that, 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 uh, and believe that once a spell was made public, once the Ephesian words were brought to light and announced to, to the public that it would actually lose its power, it would be rendered useless and ineffective. Similarly, in the same way, our sin thrives in the darkness. It, it has a hold of us in the darkness. It has a power over us in the darkness. It, it's in the secret corners of our heart that our sin feeds and gorges itself like a glutton and grows into this powerful, monstrous beast. And so the best thing practically that a believer can do by the power of the Holy Spirit is to grab that beast by its tail and drag it into the light where it is exposed for the ugliness that it is. When we tell brothers and sisters in Christ about our sin, it loses some of its grip on us by the grace of God. While a sinful lifestyle says keep everything secret, no one must know, we have to remember that there's nothing secret about the gospel of Jesus Christ. When Jesus came and revealed the glory of God, he did just that. He revealed God. And everything that was once hidden and kept from the light is exposed, right? What does the gospel writer John write in chapter one? And Jesus was life 
And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. And there will be a day where all sin will be exposed for the ugliness that it is under the sovereign judgment of Jesus Christ. The Ephesian believers confessed. They devolved, they brought their books then together and burned them all in the sight of all. The first step was an act of confession. The second step was an act of renouncement. In the burning of the books, they were formally abandoning their old way of life. They were saying this was something that we used to practice, and it was something that we enjoyed, and it was something that we desired, and it was something that had a hold on us, but now we have been released from it. We turned away from a sinful lifestyle. As a result of seeing the glory of Jesus more and clinging to Jesus more, they released a treasure of the world. And a treasure it was. This was no cheap burn party. Luke records the value of the books destroyed as about 50,000 pieces of silver. This equaled about 50,000 days of wages for the average worker of the time. If you're doing the math, that's one person working every single day for 137 years. The wages that that man would accumulate was, was, was the, the amount, the cost, the worth of these magic books that were burned that day from this believing community. It was costly. And the amount was so costly. that That's the point. Luke, as the author of Acts, doesn't care as much the specific amount as much as this was a lot of money. This cost something to do this. This was no easy task. There's this popular quote, right, that salvation is free. Come as you are. Salvation is free, but discipleship will cost you. Do you remember from last week how we defined discipleship? What is discipleship? It's being a follower. And so this concept shouldn't come as a surprise, the costliness of discipleship. When Jesus says, I will meet you right where you are, you don't have to get to me, I'm going to come to you. But then when you see my face, what do you have to do? You've got to pick up your cross. Deny yourself. And follow me. Jesus right there associates following him with pain. Because what is the cross other than a mechanism for death? An instrument for weakness. A symbol of loss. What these Ephesian believers realized, however, was that while there was pain in following Jesus, while there was great loss as they cast their expensive collections to the flames. They did it willingly. And they did it willingly because they knew they had gained in Christ and that what they had gained in Christ was far greater in value than anything else. Having seen the glory and worth of Jesus in this event, they renounced these other things. And it was worth it. And then we come to verse 20. The story closes in verse 20 when Luke 
writes, so the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Right there is the punchline. The main reason why Luke includes this story. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Two other times in Acts, Luke includes this little editorial note about the word of the Lord after a story like this. Uh, In Acts 6 and then again in Acts 12 to this point, Luke writes about how the word of, of God increased and multiplied. And he does something here uh, similar, but instead of increased and multiplies, what does he say? So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. The difference is intentional because the words prevail mightily, it means strength, it means power. And that is the emphasis. That is the ultimate takeaway. That is the impression that Luke wants to leave with the reader. Right, right, that, that it wasn't these magical spells. It was not these Ephesian words that prevailed mightily. It was the word of the Lord that prevailed mightily. He, he wants to know, he wants us to know that God is more powerful than all things. Right, that God in this instant got into the octagon like an MMA fighter with the enemy and all that the enemy represents and God knocked him out stone cold. In this account, God proved himself to be mightier in many things, mightier than sickness, mightier than evil spirits, mightier than imposters, mightier than culture, mightier than any force that could be thrown his way. And most of all, he is mightier than the stubborn, dark hearts of mankind. The God and God alone has the power to transform hearts, to bring people from the kingdom of darkness over into the kingdom of light. This is the ultimate presentation of God, is the all-powerful supreme being. And so before you leave today, I have a question. Whose corner are you standing in? Are you with God and his mighty power? Or are you holding on to the rest of the world? Would you pray with me? And Lord, we we praise you for your power and your might. And you have promised us a day where that might will be on full display. When Christ returns, Lord, the entire world will know of your power and your might. And I pray, Lord, that before we get to that day, there would be more people that come to a saving knowledge of the gospel so that that day will be an experience of joy instead of dread. We thank you, Lord, that while the world does display power, that you are mightier than it. Lord, I think about um, when when Jesus was talking to his disciples the night that he would be betrayed and, and, and he warns them about the power of the world and the trials and the tribulations of the world that we will face. But, oh Lord, what wonderful comfort that we have when Jesus says, I have overcome the world. It was by your sovereign power that Christ did. And for this, we praise you and we cling to it. Would you be glorified and your name be proclaimed above all other things. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.